You can open your Bibles, if you have one, to 2 Kings chapter 15 tonight. 2 Kings chapter 15, after a couple weeks off with the topical studies for Christmas and the end of the year and New Year's, we come back to our verse-by-verse through the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 15. And to refresh our memory with where we left off, as 2 Kings takes us forward in the history of the monarchs of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but the emphasis on the northern kingdom of Israel. So after Solomon, the great king, the son of David, stepped into eternity in 931 BC, the kingdom was divided, and there are parallel kings running in the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel, known as Judah. And the narrative of 1 Kings and 2 Kings runs parallel with these kings, but again, the emphasis is on primarily in the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, those kings of the north. When we get to Chronicles, the emphasis will be on the kings of the south in Judah. And it is different narratives, same people, but different narratives, like how the Gospels have different perspectives on events and whatnot. We'll get that when we get to Chronicles. So tonight, as we come to chapter 15, we left off of three weeks ago where King Amaziah in Judah had had victory against the Edomites and Judah and northern kingdom of Israel were constantly going at war with each other. And so he was feeling pretty confident to go make some mischief with the kings of the north. And he went to the north and he got, he got humbled, uh, humbled and pummeled. <laughs> and uh, so they got routed. And Judah was, Jerusalem was sacked. People were taken hostage. It, they got just completely routed. It was a really bad thing. They were plundered. It took quite a while for them to rebound from that. So as we come forward tonight... Picking up Uzziah, he's one that really had to take Judah forward from all that and pick up the pieces. And so that's where we left off. And as a side note, we also had Jonah mentioned to us in the text a couple weeks ago, the great prophet Jonah from the book of Jonah uh, during that time as he was in the northern kingdom with Jeroboam, the king who caused all the problems for the southern kingdom. And so now we, as we get Jonah, we get the Assyrians. They all kind of go together. And so tonight we will see the emergence of the Assyrians you know, we, we, in the book of Judges and with David, we kind of say goodbye to Philistines. And we've said hello to Syrians. And now we're moving toward the Assyrians. And eventually we'll move toward the Babylonians. They just get, the bad guys get bigger and bigger and meaner and meaner and more powerful. So now tonight we'll be moving toward the Assyrians. Chapter 15, verse 1, with that background, we read this. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, that is the king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah. Now, Azariah, the name Azariah is translated Uzziah in uh, the book of Isaiah and in Chronicles. So Azariah and Uzziah are one and the same. So if you're familiar with Uzziah, he's the same person. That's the same king. So Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places where people just made their own sacrifices were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death, so he dwelt in an isolated house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now, the rest of the acts of Azariah or Uzziah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. We get quite a few kings tonight. 
but we're going to focus on the three different kings from Judah that come across our path tonight. And this first one is Azariah, or as I said, also known as Uzziah, came to become a king when he was 16. He reigned 52 years. That's a very long reign. In the comparative text from Second Chronicles, it's like a resume. It's just a bullet point of all these successful things he did. He was a, politically, militarily, just across the board, he was a great king. His resume is so impressive. It's like you take eight bullet points, and it's just so impressive what he did as a politician for the people of God under the covenant of God in Judah. He was phenomenal. But then in the latter part of his life, he made this grave mistake that led him to becoming a leper. And we're told here in this text that the Lord struck him. And that's a one-sentence summary of what Chronicles tells us with greater detail So I'll give you a little more background to this story. As he was at the zenith of his glory, and this is noteworthy. Some people's zenith of glory comes when they're young. Like maybe someone's a great athlete when they're in their 20s or 30s, and then they never really do anything after that. That was the peak of their life, right? Like some people just, they they just, they peaked at 35 or 40, and then they they just kind of never really did much after that. that. And that can happen. Some people actually get stronger and stronger, like Harlan Sanders, right? Colonel Sanders, we talked about this. You read his biography, he did all these amazing things throughout his life. He always had a plan. He ran a riverboat that crossed the river near Kentucky. He had a restaurant that burned down. He had all these different things. He always had a plan. He retired at 62. He had, a, he had that chicken recipe of his. He was turned down 315 times between the age of 62 and 65. He realized he couldn't live on government uh, checks, Social Security. So he's like, had the vision with his recipe, and he felt like there was something there. And so Harlan went out there. He was turned down 315 times uh, with his chicken recipe, okay, which is not the current recipe they use in KFC, by the way. But his recipe was awesome. And so he was turned down 315 times, and then he struck pay dirt in his mid to late 60s, and he just blossomed and flourished, and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and all that took off, and all the things that he did, and his love for the Lord, his generosity with his funds for Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, and all these wonderful things. Hey, he, and you know, when he stepped into eternity, right about 80-ish, he was just rolling and just fantastic with the Lord. So there are people, we see this, there are people who actually get stronger and stronger as they get older, and they find another gear, and they really pour it on with the Lord, and God pours it on with them. That's who we want to be, right? We want to keep going to glory, but some people peak early. Well, when we look at uh, Uzziah here, he's actually one of those guys that got stronger and stronger. He really did. He, he poured it on. And in his latter years, so he was 16, a king for 52. So, you know, he's, he's up there. He, he really got better and better. Like, it's like he became more successful and had greater victory. And he got smarter and he made better, better decisions and greater accomplishments. And it was like, wow. And right then at the zenith, Ah, he got this bad idea. He got the idea that he could be a priest as well as a king. It's worth noting in the Old Testament with Israel under covenant, you have kings, you have priests, and you have prophets, but no one ever holds two of those offices combined. You're this, you're that, or you're that, but you're not, you don't get a two, four, or all three because it's noteworthy that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, of course, is all three. Jesus is a king, he's the priest, our great high priest, and he's the prophet that Moses spoke of as the greatest prophet. He's the king of kings, the prophet, and he's the great high priest. He's the hat trick, you know, to, like, he's it. 
It's all about Jesus, right? All things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist. And Uzziah got this idea when he was just as good as, a, he's as, good as any king has ever been. He's better than Jehoshaphat. He's, he's right up there with Solomon. Like, he's just, he's like a Solomon kind of king. And he's going to go one step further. He's, he's going to be a priest. So he goes in the temple. That's a big no-no. That's only for Levites, right? And he goes in the temple. And the priests were trying to restrain him. Like, it's a bad idea. Very bad idea. Don't do this. They tried to stop him. And he's like, he was, it says he was angry. He was furious. Now, no one looks good when they're angry, but old men, when they're angry, they look particularly bad. I know, because I've seen what I look like on video. It doesn't look good if I'm angry. I've seen it no, when I was a little bit younger, but I know what it looked like when I was in my 40s. I definitely don't want to see what it looks like in my 60s. I don't even want to, I don't even want to give you that film clip. I don't want it to exist. But you know, like sometimes when old guys get worked up, especially when they have money and power and fame, he, it was all about him. He had the money, the power, and the fame. He had it all going. And he's like, you know, I'm going to be a priest. And here's the thing that where God was so good to him. He tried to restrain him with the priest. There were people around him that were willing to tell him what he didn't want to hear, and they tried to stop him. So even though that's not in this story, before the Lord struck him, godly people tried to stop him. I want to be the godly person that tries to stop someone before the Lord strikes them. And I want you to be the godly person that tries to stop something before the Lord strikes me or someone you love. The book of Proverbs is filled with Proverbs that talk to us about receiving correction and receiving reproof and the glory of that to prevent us from making fools of ourselves and doing things we ought not to do. So it's good to be the voice that restrains someone from making a bad decision, even if you're persecuted for it. And it's certainly good to heed the voice of someone trying to restrain you or me from a bad decision, even though it hurts our pride. And have you ever noticed this? Maybe it's just me when I look in the mirror about me. But I think this is with a lot of people. I never like to be told I'm wrong when I'm wrong. I'm always sure I'm right when I'm wrong. Have you found that to be true? Yeah. Like, and I'm most... I'm least likely to receive correction that I'm wrong when I'm convinced I'm right and I'm really worked up about it. But that's the very moment when I must receive the correction that I'm wrong to prevent making a fool of myself and bringing harm upon myself and other people with further wrong. That was Uzziah's big mistake. He did not receive the correction of the people who were the priest. They tried to stop him, and he went in that temple, and they're like, stop, stop. It's like he's, it says he was furious in Chronicles. He wasn't just mad. It, so you're not having a reasonable conversation with him when you're trying to stop him. He's screaming, I'm the king. I got all this wealth. Get out of my way. I'll beat you. I'll throw you in jail. He's that kind of guy. And then all of a sudden, he's got leprosy. And then they're trying to tell him not to do it, and he's got leprosy, and he looks at them, and they look at him, and they all start running out of the temple together. By the time he ran to the temple, he'd already been struck by the Lord. In fact, the text here says, verse 5, the Lord struck him. He struck him with leprosy, and he had to live in exile from that time on. One prideful decision, not being correctable, cost him his reign and gave him a bad finish to his life, his journey, his career of being a human and a king, if you will. When we end up with Ahaz later tonight, in case I forget to give a contrast, there's one thing that's very encouraging to me about Uzziah. Is that 
he actually was chastened by the Lord. He, did, he went where he wasn't supposed to go. Godly men tried to restrain him from going there, and he faced a consequence for going there. He was struck with leprosy for going there, and he ended his life in exile. But God didn't take his life, and God chastened him. There's a lot of things God could allow from Uzziah, but going from king to priest was not one of them. You know, we say stay in your lane. He definitely got out of his lane, and that was his consequence. So he reminds us to be teachable. He reminds us to receive correction and to seek humility every day, lest it come to us in a way that we would rather not receive it. Isn't it much better to receive humility between you and the Lord in the morning than receive it? Or to receive it later on in the day when someone loves you enough to tell you not to do that? That's still better. If you can't get in the morning between you and the Lord, get in the afternoon between you and your spouse or your coworker or your boss or, or your, your employee. Because the only other way you're going to get it when you belong to the Lord is a chastening. So you can get it with the Lord or get it with people that love the Lord. They're trying to help you. Or you can just get spanked by the Lord publicly and be a leper for everyone to see you're a leper. I prefer the first option, if need be the second one, and I absolutely want to avoid the third one. Yes and amen. That's what we learned from Uzziah here. I don't want the Lord to strike me. Do you? No, I, I want the Lord to say, hey, you're being prideful. I want to look in the mirror and go like, dude, you are really prideful today. I see it. I want that smirk off your face. Look, you're just so prideful today. The first thing I ask for every morning with the Lord is humility and gratitude. And if I don't mean it, I need to mean it. So if I at least ask for it, then maybe I might just get it even though I'm prideful. Humility and gratitude will set you in a good course every day. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And blessed is the man or woman who humbles himself, and God's going to use him. Uzziah, his overall life is fantastic. His resume is incredible. It's just the end of his career is just not a good look. And I don't want to think about it, just the last sequence of his life, because his whole life was really awesome, but it's still, it's just not the way you want it to end for him. In, in a house as a leper, he, he was dying while he was living, and it cost him everything. We need to know our boundaries. We need to receive correction and just keep going forward and not be so prideful we can't receive correction from the Lord, people that are used by the Lord, because the only alternative is to be struck by the Lord. And whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So even this, even being struck by the Lord and being a leper is better than not, which we'll see when we get to Ahaz. Now, as we come to chapter, excuse me, verse 8, we come to five kings of the north, four who come to power through conspiracies and assassination. In the record of these kings... When you harmonize the different kings and the years of the Bible together, there's actually about a 10 years it's kind of missing there where it doesn't match up. And people have speculated there actually was a time period during these kings where no one was a king. As Israel in the north was just descending into sin and imploding on themselves as a people, it just kind of became like the Wild West, like the Wild Wild West, if you will. And like one violent criminal rises up to try and be the king and then killed by another one, and then that one rises up, and that's our background. So this is the end of the northern kingdom. What we're about to read, these five kings, essentially is the end of the northern kingdom and the consequence of a couple hundred years of people just doing what they want to do and not doing what the Lord has for them to do, especially because Israel was under a covenant with the Lord. So we pick it up in verse 8, and we'll get these kings, and we'll point out a couple things when we're done reading about all five of them. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, so in other words, the 38th year of Uzziah, 
Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria for six months. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So that's the idolatry of the golden cows and all that, and all that it represented. Uh, so that Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, Solomon's servant, 200 years earlier, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, he didn't depart from that. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. So he publicly killed him and claimed to be the king. Verse 11. Now the rest of the acts of Zechariah, indeed, are they written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? This was the word of the Lord which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Now, remember, Jehu was used mightily by God a couple chapters ago. We were with him back in November, December, and God used him to kill Jezebel and take care of business. Jehu was used mightily by the Lord in the northern kingdom, but he never really sought the Lord. So he was a, a, a vessel of the Lord, but he didn't really belong to the Lord. He's just another king in Israel, probably the best one of all the bad ones, but that's not saying much because he didn't walk with the Lord. But still, God promised him that his, his dynasty would last four generations, and that was it. When Zechariah goes down, that's the end of the, that was the four-generation four dynasty for the northern kingdom with the house of Jehu. Now, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tizra, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now, the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then from Tirzah, Menahem attacked Tifsah, all who were there in its territory, and because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it, and all the women that were pregnant were with child, he ripped open. So this is just ruthless barbarianism. But lest it catch us off guard, the Assyrians were just as bad and worse. So really what's happening here is the northern kingdom is just descending and just removing the ancient landmarks. God's word's not governing them. Common sense, decency, respect of humanity is not governing them. They're just completely imploding on themselves. And they are becoming as bad as the Assyrians, because the Assyrians were like this, but much more powerful. So they're just weakening and weakening from within, because the Assyrians are the Assyrians, but Israel belonged to God, and they're just, they're not turning around. Something interesting that gets your attention, though, in verse 12, it says that that son of Jehu, Zechariah, he was the end of the four, year, four generations, and then you look at Shalom, and he reigned a month. So this is quite a contrast, because... Shalom killed the man who ended four generations of a dynasty, and his dynasty was four, four, four weeks. You have a dynasty of four generations, and then you have a dynasty of four weeks. It's just, man, when you're living without the Lord, it can just go wrong quickly. Conspiracy, conspiracy, assassination, and then just violence. Verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, so that's Uzziah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of God, he became king over Israel and reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Pul, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from all the very wealthy, from each man fifty shekels of silver to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers, then Pekiah, his son, reigned in his place. 
So Menahem, what he did is he, he took from the wealthy. Now the prophets tell us, because some of the Old Testament prophets match up with these men and tell us things about their time, that the wealthy were wealthy by corruption and deceit and just ripping people off, which is so often the case, but not always. But that's how they were. But that's what, you know, like drowning governments will tax anyone and everyone they can to keep their government afloat, and that's what they did, and they took it from these people. But these weren't honest, hardworking people. These were people that were just as corrupt as the king and how he came to, to power with conspiracies and all these things. And that's the way it worked. So in the first phase of the kings of Assyria coming from the north against Israel, they, they were appeased with money and they were appeased with wealth, but uh, there's never enough of that. So verse 23 we read on. In the 50th year of Isaiah, king of Judah, Pekinah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Pekiah, the son of Remaliah, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria, in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Arya, and with him were 50 men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did Indeed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So here's another conspiracy. Pekahiah comes to power, conspired. He was his trusted officer. And that's just the way it is with human beings. Verse 27. In the 52nd year of Uzziah, you notice how Uzziah is just a steady, consistent reign of stability in Judah while all this chaos is going on in the north for the same 50 years right above them. So he became king over Israel in Samaria, this guy, Pekah, for 20 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pisar, king of Assyria, came and took Ejon, uh, Abelbeth, Makkah, Jonah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. He carried them captive to Assyria, then Hosea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. We'll get to Jotham in a minute. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So this is our fifth king from these northern kings. And he led a conspiracy. So four out of five, there's a conspiracy with an assassination of these kings. It's just really unraveling in the north, like I said. And now another Assyrian king comes, and he takes cities, and he does all this. What we read about in other places in the Bible when it harmonizes itself is that the Assyrian kings, when they came down, they literally came down, and they, the first thing they did was plunder those two and a half tribes on the uh, east side of the Jordan. So at the same time, they're like, hey, all those Israelites, remember, that wanted to be on the other side of the Jordan River, the two and a half tribes? They're gone. They're just they're gone. Assyria took them away, and then Assyria just began to grab land. And by this time, the northern kingdom is being reduced to a landmass of about 30 miles by 40 miles, like Orange County, right? And we're talking San Clemente to Seal Beach to Yorba Linda. That's pretty much it. That's, that's, what they're, that's what's left of them. They're just being devoured bit by bit, and they're powerless to come against it because they're not right with the Lord. And as we move from them to the Judah kings now for the rest of the night, it's important to realize this. The Judah kings are the important ones. When you open the Gospel of Matthew and you read the chronology of Jesus Christ through technically be a stepdad, Joseph, those are all kings of Judah. The promise for Jesus Christ 
the king of the universe, the savior of the world, that comes to the world, is not through the descendants of Jeroboam of Nebat and all the golden cows for 300 years in the northern kingdom. The promise to save us from our sins here tonight as the church of Jesus Christ comes through the southern kingdom of Judah. That's the apple of his eye. Those kings that we read about in Matthew are all Judah kings because God made a promise to David that the Messiah would come through his line, which is the tribe of Judah. He promised a thousand years before David that the scepter would not depart from Judah through Jacob, the patriarch. And it was always his plan that the Savior of the world, who we worship tonight when Scott's leading us in worship and we're singing songs and we're receiving the word of God, it's not to build knowledge or information. We're receiving the word of God to grow in our faith in Jesus, to grow in our devotion to Jesus, and to grow in our walk with Jesus and understanding of Jesus. And Jesus comes to the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. So we might say, why do we have all this information about northern kings? And as I can tell you, this is in the word of God. And all scripture is inspired and serves a purpose. And these guys are here to remind us that when you see people like this 3,000 years ago, and you see people like this outside our doors, controlling countries, it just tells us there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing unique. There's nothing new under the sun. Conspiracies, corruption, injustices. This is what... This is a fallen world in need of a savior, and that has never changed. But good for us that we have Jesus who fulfills all those promises of the Old Testament and is the perfect king, priest, and prophet to guide us in our journey, no matter what's going on in our timeline as the church of Jesus Christ. So we put these five kings aside and we say, yep, that, that's them, and they're going to go the way they go, and we can say that about a lot of kings outside these doors. The church is what matters, and the people of faith is what matters. And so that brings us back to uh, verse 32 of chapter 15. So now we get Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So he came, he came to administrative power when his dad became a leper. And then eventually his dad died, and he's the full king. And it's all, it's the, there might have been a transitory time, but there's just, man, he became king. So in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzzah, Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerushua, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. See, he's a good king. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham, that he, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah. So these bad kings in the north we just read about, God raised them up to come against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Now, the Lord began to, to raise up kings against the king of Syria and the king of north against Judah. Sometimes we, again, we go back to this. Why do some people get away with everything and never seem to be held accountable for to it and some people can't get away with anything? Why is it that people are trying to do the right thing are the ones that seem to get, have things go wrong and the people who do the wrong things and get away with it and they control everything and they just continue to get away with it? How do they get away with it? Well, because they don't really ever get away with it. They're not God's people. That's why they can do what they can do and get away with it. They have no place in the, in the kingdom in eternity. But we're God's people. 
And we have things to do in the kingdom. And we're being prepared for the kingdom. So that's why even when someone like Jotham's reigning, that he's going to be tested by being attacked by the north. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. It goes back to Uzziah. He was chastened by the Lord. Jotham's, uh, during the time of, from Uzziah to Jotham to Ahaz, God allowed Judah to be chastened because Judah is the one through whom the king, Jesus Christ, is going to come. So that's, 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 that's your own children. God's, you know, we're going to discipline our children. That's what we do. We discipline our children for their own good that they'll become what they're meant to be. And Israel in the north, they never really returned. Even when Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians, they returned. God is, God is faithful with his people. And that's what we realize, that the Lord began to raise up these people against Judah. It's because he's chastening them. And sometimes he raises things up against us to chasten us because he's refining us. And we're told that those who are trained by it produce a holiness and a righteousness that makes us better than before. And we're more useful in time and we're way more useful for eternity. And that's why we're told, my son, by Solomon, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And that comes from Proverbs chapter 3 and is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Now, one thing about Jotham before we move on to Ahaz is the second Judah king, Uzziah, now his son, Jotham. There's interesting detail we could almost miss if we're just reading this and we're reading. But it says here in verse 35, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now, when, when Jeroboam from the north had just conquered Ahaziah and gave him the beatdown in the previous chapter, he plundered all this stuff. He took the treasuries of the house of the Lord. He broke down this wall, the, the connection. This upper gate is the connection between the king's palace and the temple. It's the way. It's the way for the king to be with the Lord. It's the route to church for the king. This upper gate was destroyed. And it's so symbolic that the previous king had it destroyed, separating what represented the place of political power from the place of personal worship. And when you study these kings of Judah in the Bible, you will find every king that's interested in the temple. Good things happen. Even if they go south, good things still happen. Whenever any political leader in Judah takes interest in refurbishing the temple, fixing the temple, uh, restoring the teaching of the word of God, we're, we're, the, rest of the, the rest of this book, we're going to be looking at Hezekiah and Josiah. Tonight's like mixed nuts. Seven kings. So, eight kings, actually. But the next four weeks in Second Kings, we got two weeks with Hezekiah and two weeks with Josiah. Now, that's a preview of coming attractions. And those are great kings that brought about great reforms that God used mightily. But before we get to them, we see what we're going to see even more clear with them, that when people have the opportunity to do something good and they do good, God blesses that. And here, Jotham, we're told... He, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. That essentially, we could, we could kind of use a, he made church important. He made midweek Bible study important. He made fellowship important. He made reading the Bible important. This, this is his own, no one said you have to do this. We don't have to read of a prophet saying, hey, rebuild the upper gate. This upper gate was his rebuilding the way between him and the Lord for him, the king of all the, the people of Judah and the messianic line of David to all the way to Jesus. He's like, I'm going to make a way to the Lord. This is my pathway to the Lord's house and I'm going to fix it. 
That's what I'm going to do. And it is important and it is symbolic because the next king, his son, tore it down when he was fighting the Lord. Godly kings and queens build up those spiritual things and ungodly kings and queens, what do they do? They destroy them. Even if they tell you they're Christians or go to church, whatever, they destroy the things of God, the ungodly ones. The godly ones, they don't need to tell you they're godly. They show you they're godly because they do godly things and implement godly laws and, and principles and mandates to the benefit of people who are godly. And that's why Solomon said, when the godly reign, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, as they said in the 60s, it's a bummer. That's what it is. So this, he built the upper gate. He, he, he made important the way to the Lord. He made important the things of the Lord. And that's very encouraging to all of us. So good, good for Jotham. Good for him. His dad was struck down. He saw God's hand strike his dad with leprosy. He came to power. He was in his mid-20s. His dad came to power as a teenager, just old enough to drive a car. He, he's old enough to run a company at 26. He's old enough to be the starting quarterback in the NFL, right? Like, he's, he's a brain trustee. Like, he's, he's old enough to, he's got a little more age experience, and he did good things. There's no real bad thing attributed to him, just good things. He was a good king. And he built the way between him and the Lord to be in fellowship with the Lord. And I appreciate that. Now his son, not so much. So we pick up in chapter 16, verse 1. Now in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. See, it's, they're all linked to David because they're all descendants of David, moving toward Jesus. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, so the kings of Israel, all the bad kings in the north, indeed he made his son pass through the fire. That means his, he worshiped Molech, the idol that they made hot. They put their infant children on him. They banged the drums while the children were screaming for their lives, being burned alive. That's what they did, emphasized, and a form of really satanic worship to Molech. So he did that with his son. He took heirs of the throne and sacrificed them on a burning idol and beat the drums so they wouldn't have to hear the screams of the baby. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. There was no restraint under every green tree. Just no restraint against evil in his time. Anything evil, you can redefine it. You can redefine anything and everything under his reign. Just find your green tree and do your business and don't judge me and I won't judge you. See, that's just, that's what he did. See, there's nothing new under the sun. And this guy was a king for the people of covenant. Verse five, then reason, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war and they besieged Ahaz, but they, not, they could not overcome him. Now, this is fascinating because you think God would spank him through these guys, but they, but they could not overcome him. It's a total change. The, the storyline so far with Israel kings versus Judah kings is usually Israel kings are winning. Even though they're more evil, they're winning because God's using them to chase the people he loves and he could care less what the Israel kings do. They're going to go their way. Eventually they're going to implode because if you sow the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow the spirit, you reap life. So these northern kings are all going to just, like I said, they have no business in eternity. The kings of Judah do. So God will let these bad kings chase in these lukewarm kings because this is, this is the people of covenant over here. But this guy, he's, he's like, how does he get away with this? He's, he's committing ificide with his own children 
And he's encouraging all kinds of any evil under the sun, under every green tree, all over the place. He's stumbling God's people. And then he gets attacked, and he suddenly, why of all kings is he the guy that has victory against the northern kingdom and against Syria? He's got the two, he's, he's got the two for one. Like, how is this so? And so we read that at that time they came and uh, those kings resident of Syria and they captured Eloth of Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. So they took some of the surrounding region, but they could not take Jerusalem. Then the Edomites from the south came up and they took Elah and dwelt there. See, there's always someone to claim the spoil, isn't there? Verse 7, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilser, king of Assyria. This is where the story really gets some traction. So there's a new king of Assyria. And We've already seen the northern kings make deals with the kings of Assyria. Now he's going to make a king from Judah with the, northern, with the Syrian kings against the northern kings and against Syria. And he says, hey, hey, I'm your servant and your son. You know, it's never a good thing when the, when the king of Judah says to the king of Assyria, I'm your servant and your son. That's a bad thing. That's like when the church says, let Caesar tell them how to run the church. And you capitulate Jesus being Lord of the church and let government tell the church what to do. The moment someone's called to be a spiritual leader says to Assyria, I'm your son, that's a, that's a bad sign. We're sons and daughters of the king in here. And the king rules his church, not the king of Assyria. And nothing good can ever come from it when people in ministry say, you, Assyria, tell us what to do. You, power of the world, tell us how to do the kingdom of God. I'm your homie. I'm your boy. I'm your girl. We'll do how you tell us to do it, and we'll just do what you tell us to do. Just don't give us a hard time. Just don't make us close our doors. Just don't make us cease to exist and receive money. Just to, We'll do whatever you tell us to do. As long as we can just still receive money and do our thing, we'll do it the way you want us to do it. It's never a good thing. It can never be a good thing when the people come and tell the king of Assyria, you're our daddy. Who's your daddy? Oh, the king of Assyria is my daddy. No, our daddy's Abba Father, Jehovah, king of the universe. That's our daddy. And he watches over his church because the church is the bride of his son. God forbid the church ever say the king of Assyria is our daddy. Because when you say the king of Assyria is our daddy, that's like saying Caesar's our daddy. Caesar's not our daddy. Jesus said, render to Caesar things that are Caesar, but to God the things that are God. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know which is which when they're reading the word of God and being led by the Spirit. It's never a good thing. Oh, I'm your servant and your son. I am not Caesar's servant. I am a citizen under Caesar, but I'm Jesus' servant, as I think you are too. And almost every generation has to determine and show who their king is and who they bow the knee to. I've never bowed to the king of Assyria, and I have no intention to ever bow to the king of Assyria and calling him my daddy and saying I'm his servant. Because we're told in the New Testament the ideal citizen for Caesar is the born-again believer on fire for the Lord. We are told in the New Testament epistles that the person who's serving Jesus is love, humility, faithfulness. The person, the spirit-filled woman, the spirit-filled man, always benefits a society to the fullest. We build schools that benefit society. We build hospitals that help people. That's what spirit-filled men and women do. That's the history of the church. 
We rescue women who are entrapped in human trafficking. That's what Amy Carmichael did. That's what we do. And we don't need Caesar to tell us how to do it. We don't need Caesar to compensate us to do it. Jehovah is our daddy, and we are the servant of the Most High God. And where it works well with Caesar, and Caesar appreciates a model citizen, then it's good for, it's good for society, it's good for us, it's good for Caesar. But where Caesar goes at war to, against Jehovah and Yeshua, his son, then we're, we're with Jehovah and Yeshua. So whatever he's going to do against those who follow Jehovah and Yeshua, that's what he's going to do. But God forbid, God forbid we ever say that Tiglis Pilsier, that he's our, that we're his servant and we're his son or his daughter. That's it. I don't like verse 7. And he says, come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria, from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. You know, we're always called to cry out to the Lord. We're told the one that cries out to the Lord, the Lord will always hear us. I tell you, I've been reading the Promise Bible, right? And I've been only reading the Promise Bible during the holiday season. And you get any topic and you read all the promises about it. And you read about the Lord's deliverance, the Lord's protection. And you think, why would we ever trust in anyone but the Lord to deliver us and protect us? When you see all these promises back to back to back to back to back, all laid out on one topic, the Lord's protection and the Lord's deliverance, you think, why would I ever trust in men or women? We trust in the Lord. What does the Bible say over and over and over? Trust in the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Seek the Lord. I cried out to you and you heard my cry. It's, it's the word of God. It's the whole word of God that we have a relationship with God. We're his children. We're his servants, not pigless tisslers from Assyria. We don't need to cry out to governors and presidents and to save us from anything. If the Lord saves us, we're saved. If he doesn't save us, then it's our time. That's just the bottom line. The Lord's the one who saves. He's Lord of eternity and Lord of time. He's over all the kings of the earth. He's over all the diseases and the human experience. He's over all of our fears and the worst thing that could ever happen to us. We cry out to the Lord. This is just, man, this guy is evil. He's sacrificing his children as they're screaming out for mercy. This, babies are screaming, being executed in worship to Satan. Everyone's doing whatever they want under each tree. And then he is aligning himself with this guy in Assyria and saying, I'm your son, I'm your servant, save me. And so verse 8, now it says, Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. He took what belonged to the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria to buy his safety and security. You know, when you make a deal with the king of Assyria, you're, you're sacrificing something. You're giving up something. Not just your faith, but just your whole identity. You're given that which cannot fail to give that which only can fail. You're moving your confidence from a sure foundation to that which is a slippery slope. So the king of Assyria heeding him. It might look good briefly, but it's not going to be good in the long run. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, took it, carried his people captive to Kerr, and he killed reason. It looked good. I mean, Ahaz in his past has to go like, this worked. It totally worked. It worked. I made the deal. 
We're, we're sacrificing infants. We're doing whatever we want under every green tree. Uh, I'm his, he's my daddy. I'm his servant. I gave him all the money from the temple that other people saved up. My son, my dad, Jotham, saved all this, rebuilt this upper gate. I just gave it all to him. It's all good. Look, we're living in peace. Everyone's happy. And Risen, who came against us, he killed them for us. But alas, there's a way that seems right to a man, but then thereby is death. Verse 10, now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, Tiglath Pilzer, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah, the priest, the design of the altar, its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So see, they're in Samaria, and he sees a, four, uh, a pagan altar. He says, this is awesome. Here's the design, and he sends it down south to Uriah, a priest of the Lord, and says, build me one of these in Jerusalem. So Uriah the priest made it before the king, uh, made it before the king Ahaz came back from Damascus. Verse 12, and when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar. The king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offerings and his grain offerings, and he poured his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. So he's doing things in the name of Jehovah, but with a pagan altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple. So in other words, he took the Lord's altar, that was the Lord's altar, and he put the new altar in its place, between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the, the new altar. Out with the old, in with the new. Then, the king, then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great new altar, the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifices, grain offering with the burnt offering, all the people of the land, the grain offering, the drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offerings, all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus Uriah uh, Uriah the priest, according to all he did, according to all King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts. Look at this verse. Cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them that were under it, he took the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on the pavement of stone. Also removed, he removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance. That's what his dad built. That's the outer entrance we just read about. He removed it from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Whoa. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, oh, finally. Then Hezekiah's son reigned in his place. You bring in the world, you get the world. If you surrender your altar and your place of worship to the world, the world will tell you what you can do in your house of worship and with your altar. Once you tell the king of Assyria, he's your daddy and you're his servant, then he shows up and tells you, tear down the outer entrance. I don't want there to be a link between the king's palace and the temple. Tear it down. I don't want you to meet on these days under these circumstances. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. Because I'm your daddy. See, you surrendered your freedom to me and you you gave up your servanthood and being under the lordship of Jehovah to me. So I'm your king not Jehovah, and I tell you, you can't have this upper gate, and you can't have this altar. Put this one off to the side. Well, we want to appear to be compliant, so we'll keep the old one and put it over here, and you can look like that's part of what you're doing, but you replace it with this one. 
This is what liberal theology has done to the church for 2,000 years. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this has been going on for 2,000 years in the church. The church gives up the blood of Christ. The church gives up the sufficiency of Christ. The church gives up the supremacy of Christ. And, and it goes Jesus minus this or Jesus plus that. And you, you remove the authority of Christ over all things. And you, and you eventually lose the gospel. That's what happens. So these little compromises, and as leadership from generation to generation in a church, in a denomination, and by the way, you probably think there's hundreds of denominations. There's actually over 15,000 denominations on planet Earth. That's like God just rebirthing the gospel over and over and over and over and over again, pretty much. Because within one to two, three, one to three, one to two or three generations, take Methodism or Anglicans and other, and other people like that, these other denominations, they can go bad so fast. The Methodists were on fire with the gospel. They give their lives for the gospel, and now they deny the gospel. Not all of them. Many Methodists believe the gospel, but all the leadership of the Methodists do not. And so they put their altar that they picked up in Damascus in their temple, in their house of worship, instead of the cross of Jesus Christ, and they take the cross and put it over here to the side and say, well, maybe, you know, that might work for some of you. Just, just, you know, it's about justice and injustices. It's about social things and all this and that. It's about feeding the poor and clothing them and giving them housing. Well, let me tell you something. Listen, WG, and you know this, but let's make this very clear. For the record, on the first service of 2023, if you have Jesus reigning supreme over his church, his blood, his baptism, the Holy Spirit, you will take care of injustices. You will care about injustices. You will want to feed the poor. You will want to house the poor and clothe the poor. But you will not sacrifice the gospel truth to save them in doing so. But what happens when you take the altar of Damascus with the blessing of Assyria and sell your soul to them to bail you out of your financial problems and bow the knee to them no matter what they say, and yet you say you're compliant and you're a good Christian, what you end up doing is, is you do feed the poor and you do clothe them and you do house them, but you do not give them the gospel. Or you give them a different gospel or you're ashamed of the gospel. That's what happens. Don't do that. If there's one lesson from Ahaz that speaks loud and clear is a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And if it's true for denominations and churches and leadership, it is true for individuals. So forget about everyone else that we could think about there. I'm looking at me in the mirror right now. Because my concern is not Methodists who deny the gospel or the Archbishop Canterbury Anglican Church denies the gospel and denies sexual identity as God's defined it and marriage as God's defined it. They're not my problem. My problem is the man in the mirror. So what I need to do is make sure that I'm not letting the king of Assyria rule and reign over anything in my life. To compromise the love for Christ, the conviction for his word, and the power of his spirit upon my life. That's what it really comes down to. Because so often you can read stuff like this and say, them, them, them. But honestly, it has to always come back to me, me, me in a good way. I don't want to go anywhere near where Ahaz went with this. Do you? And when you look at 2023, what could be worse than making deals with the king of Assyria and compromising the true altar for a false altar? And having, having your flesh come in and your pride and all these other things come in and tell you, Tear down that connection between you and the king's place of worship. No, we need to guard the upper gate. We need to know our place, and we need to be all in. We need to guard the upper gate and cry out to the Lord for deliverance when the king of Syria and the king of the north come against us, not to these guys. The Lord is our deliverer.
And that's what these, these three kings tell us that. That's what we learn. So be encouraged. Take heart. Take note. There's encouragement in this text. There's exhortation in this text. And I suppose there's comfort too. So 